So with the price of Bitcoin surging to new highs in 2017, the bullish case for investors might seem so obvious it does not need stating. Alternatively, it may seem foolish to invest in a digital asset that isn't backed by any commodity or government and whose price rise has prompted some to compare it to the tulip mania or the dot-com bubble. Neither is true, the bullish case for Bitcoin is compelling but far from obvious. There are significant risks to investing in Bitcoin, but as I will argue, there is still an immense opportunity. Never in the history of the world had it been possible to transfer value between distant people without relying on trusted intermediaries, such as a bank or a government. In 2008, Satoshi Nakamoto, whose identity is still unknown, published a nine-page solution to a long-standing problem of computer science known as the Byzantine Generals Problem. Nakamoto's solution and the system he built from it allowed for the first time ever value to be quickly transferred at a great distance in a completely trustless way. The ramifications of the creation of Bitcoin are so profound for both economics and computer science that Nakamoto should rightly be the first person to qualify for both a Nobel Prize in Economics and Turing Award. For an investor, the salient fact of the invention of Bitcoin is the creation of a new scarce digital good. Bitcoin. Bitcoins are transferable digital tokens that are created on the Bitcoin network in a process known as mining. Bitcoin mining is roughly analog analogous to gold mining except that the production follows a designed predictable schedule. By design only 21 million Bitcoins will ever be mined and most of these already have been. Approximately 16.8 million Bitcoins have been mined at the time of writing. Let me update that br briefly. I think at the moment we are at, yeah, at the moment we have a money supply of 18,474,783.58 Bitcoins, which means the percentage issued is 87.98%. Um, by today, I mean the 30th of August, 2020. So almost 90% of all Bitcoins are already mined. For an investor, the salient fact of the invention of Bitcoin is the creation of a new scarce digital good. Bitcoins are transferable digital tokens that are created on the Bitcoin network in a process known as mining. Bitcoin mining is roughly analogous to gold mining, except that production follows a designed predictable schedule. By design, only 21 million Bitcoins will ever be mined, and most of these already have been. Approximately 18.47 million Bitcoins have been mined, which uh, represents a percentage of 87.98%. Every four years, the number of Bitcoins produced by mining halves and the production of new Bitcoins will end completely by the year 2140. Bitcoins are not backed by any physical commodity, nor are they guaranteed by any government or company, which raises the obvious question for a new Bitcoin investor, why do they have any value at all? Unlike stocks, bonds, real estate, or even commodities such as oil and wheat, Bitcoins cannot be valued using standard discounted cash flow analysis or by demand for their use in the production of other goods. Unlike stocks, bonds, real estate or even commodities such as oil and wheat, bitcoins cannot be valued using standard disco discounted cash flow analysis or by demand for their use in the production of higher order goods. Bitcoins fall into an entirely different category of goods known as mon monetary goods, whose value is set game theoretically i.e. each market participant values the good based on their appraisal of whether and how much other participants will value it. To understand the game-theoretic nature of monetary goods, we need to explore the origins of money. The origins of money In the earliest human societies, trade between groups of people occurred through barter. The incredible inefficiencies inherent to barter trade drastically limited the scale and geographical scope 
at which trade could occur. A major disadvantage with barter-based trade is the double, double coincidence of one's problem. An apple grower may desire trade with a fisherman, for example, but if the fisherman does not desire apples at the same moment, the trade will not take place. Over time, humans evolved the desire to hold certain collectible items for their rarity and symbolic value. Examples include shells, animal teeth and flint. Indeed, as Nick Szabo argues in his brilliant essay on the origins of money, the human desire for collectible provided a distinct evolutionary advantage for every man over the nearest biological competitors, Homo neanderthalensis. The primary ultimate function of collectible was a medium for storing and transferring wealth. Collectibles served as a sort of proto-money by making trade possible between otherwise antagonistic tribes and by all allowing wealth to be transferred between the generations. Trade and transfer of collectibles were quite infrequent in a paleolithic societies and these goods served more as a store of value rather than a medium of exchange. Trade and transfer of collectibles were quite infrequent in paleolithic societies and these goods served more as a store of value rather than a medium of exchange role that we largely recognize modern money to play. Sabo explains, compared to modern money, primitive money had a very low velocity. It might be transferred only a handful of times in the average individual's lifetime. Nevertheless, a durable collectible, what today we would call an heirloom, could persist for many generations and added substantial value at each transfer, often making the transfer even possible at all. Early man faced an important game-theoretical dilemma when deciding which collectible to gather or create. Which objects would be desired by other humans? By correctly anticipating which objects might be demanded for their collectible value, a tremendous benefit was conferred on the possessor in the ability to complete trade and acquire wealth. Some Native American tribes such as the Naragansets <laughs> Okay, I will try that again. Some Native American tribes such as the Narganzets specialized in the manufacture of otherwise useless collectibles simply for their value in trade. It is worth noting that the earlier the anticipation of future demand for a collectible good, the greater the advantage conferred to its possessor. It can be acquired more cheaply than when it is widely demanded and its trade value appreciates as the population which demands it expands. Furthermore, acquiring a good in hopes that it will be demanded as a future store of value hastens its adoption for that very purpose. This seeming circularity is actually a feedback loop that drives societies to quickly converge on a single store of value. In game-theoretic terms, this is known as the Nash Equilibrium. Achieving a Nash Equilibrium for a store of value is a major boon to any society, as it greatly facilitates trade and the division of labor, paving the way for the advent of civilization. Over the millennia, as human societies grew and trade routes developed, the store of value that had emerged in individual societies came to compete against each other. Merchants and traders would face a choice whether to save the proceeds of their trade in the store of value of their own society or the store of value of the society they were trading with or some balance of both. The benefit of maintaining savings in a foreign store of value was the enhanced ability to complete trade in the associated foreign society. 
Merchants holding savings in a foreign store of value also had an incentive to encourage its adoption within their own society, as this would increase the purchasing power of their savings. The benefits of an imported store of value accrued not only the merchants doing the importing, but also the societies themselves. Two societies converging on a single store of value would see a substantial decrease in the cost of completing trade with each other and an attendant increase in trade-based wealth. Indeed, the 19th century was the first time when most of the world converged on a single store of value, gold, and this period saw the greatest explosion of trade in the history of the world. The Attributes of a Good Store of Value When stores of value compete against each other, it is the specific attributes that make a good store of value that allows one to outcompete another at the margin and increase demand for it over time. While many goods have been used as stores of value or proto-money, certain attributes emerged that were particularly de demanded and allowed goods with these attributes to outcompete others. An ideal store of value will be durable. The good must be must not be perishable or easily destroyed. Thus, wheat is not an ideal st store of value. Portable. The good must be easy to transport and store, making it possible to secure it against loss or, or theft and allowing it to facilitate long-distance trade. A cow is thus less ideal than a gold bracelet. Fungible. One specimen of the good should be interchangeable with another of equal quantity. Without fungibility, the coincidence of one's problem remains unsolved. Thus gold is better than diamonds, which are ir irregular in shape and quality. Verifiable. The good must be easy to quickly identify and verify as authentic. Easy verification increases the confidence of its recipient in trade and increases the likelihood a trade will be consummated. Divisible. The good must be easy to subdivide. While this attribute was less important in early societies, where trade was infrequent, it became more important as trade flourished and the quantities exchanged became smaller and more precise. Scarce. As Nick Szabo termed it, a monetary good must have unforgeable costliness. In other words, the good must not be abundant or easy to either obtain or produce in quantity. Scarcity is perhaps the most important attribute of a store of value, as it taps into the inmate human desire to collect what which is rare. It is the source of the original value of the store of value. Established history the longer the good is perceived to have been valuable by society, the greater its appeal as a store of value. A long-established store of value will be hard to displace by a new upstart except by force of conquest or if the arrivist is endowed with a significant advantage among the other attributes listed above. Censorship resistant A new attribute which has become increasingly important in our modern digital society with pervasive surveillance is censorship resistance. That is, how difficult it is for an external party such as a corporation or a state to prevent the owner of the good from keeping and using it. Goods that are censorship resistant are ideal to those living under regimes that are trying to enforce capital controls or outlaw various forms of peaceful trade. Durability Gold is the undisputed king of durability. The vast majority of gold that has ever been mined or minted, including the gold of the pharaohs, remains extant today and will likely be available a thousand years hence. Gold coins that were used as money in antiquity still maintain significant value today. 
Fiat currency and bitcoins are fundamentally digital records that may take physical form, such as paper bills. Thus it is not their physical manifestation whose durability should be considered, since a tethered dollar bill may be exchanged for a new one, but the durability of the institution that issues them. In that case of fiat currencies, many governments have come and gone over the centuries and their currencies disappeared with them. The Papiermark, Rentenmark, Reichsmark of the Weimar Republic no longer have value because the institutions that issued them no longer exist. If history is a guide, it would be folly to consider fiat currencies durable in a long term. The US dollar and British pound are relative anomalies in this regard. Bitcoins may be considered durable so long as the network that secures them remains in place. Given that Bitcoin is still in its infancy, it is too early to draw strong conclusions about its durability. However, there are encouraging signs that despite prominent instances of nation-states attempting to regulate Bitcoin and years of attacks by hackers, the network has continued to function, displaying a remarkable degree of anti-fragility. Portability Bitcoins are the most portable store of value ever used by man. Private keys representing hundreds of millions of dollars can be stored on a tiny USB drive and easily carried everywhere. Furthermore, equally valuable sums can be transmitted between people on opposite ends of the earth near instantly. Fiat currencies being fundamentally digital are also highly portable. However, government regulations and capital controls mean that the large transfers of value usually take days or may not be possible at all. Cash can be used to avoid capital controls, but then this risk of storage and cost of transportation becomes significant. Gold, being physical in form and incredibly dense, is by far the least portable. It is no wonder that the majority of bullion is never transported. When bullion is transferred between a buyer and a seller, it is typically only the title to the gold that is transferred, not the physical bullion itself. Transmitting physical gold across large distances is costly, risky and time-consuming. Fungibility Gold provides the standard for fungibility. When melted down, an ounce of gold is essentially indistinguishable from any other ounce, and gold has always traded this way on the market. Fiat currencies, on the other hand, are only as fungible as the issuing institutions allow them to be. While it may be the case that a fiat banknote is usually treated like any other by merchants accepting them, there are instances where large denominations notes have been treated differently to small ones. For instance, India's government, in an attempt to stamp out India's untaxed grey market, completely demonetized their 500,000 rupee banknotes. The demonetization caused 501,000 rupee banknotes to trade at a discount to their face value, making them no longer truly fungible with their lower denomination sibling notes. Bitcoins are fungible at the network level, meaning that every Bitcoin when transmitted is treated the same on the Bitcoin network. Verifiability for most intents and purposes, both fiat currencies and gold are fairly easy to verify for authenticity. However, despite providing features on their banknotes to prevent counterfeiting, nation-states and their citizens still face the potential to be duped by counterfeit bills. Gold is also not immune from being counterfeited. Sophisticated criminals have used gold-plated tungsten as a way of fooling gold investors into paying for false gold. Bitcoins, on the other hand, can be verified with mathematical certainty. Using cryptographic signatures, the owner of a Bitcoin can publicly prove he owns a Bitcoin, he or she says he does. Divisibility Bitcoins can be divided down to a hundred millionth of a Bitcoin and transmitted at 
such infinitesimal amounts, network fees can however make a transmission of tiny amounts uneconomic. Fiat currencies are typically divisible down to a pocket change which has little purchasing power making fiat divisible enough in practice. Gold, while physically divisible, becomes difficult to use when divided into small enough quantities that it could be useful for lower value day-to-day -day rate. Scarcity The attribute that most clearly distinguishes Bitcoin from fiat currencies and gold is its predetermined scarcity. By design, at most 21 million Bitcoins can ever be created. This gives the owner of Bitcoins a known percentage of the total possible supply. For instance, an owner of 10 Bitcoins would, own, would know that almost 2.1 million people on Earth, less than 0.03% of the world's population, could ever have as many Bitcoins as they had. Gold, while remaining quite scarce through history, is not immune to increase in supply. If it were ever the case that a new method of mining or acquiring gold became economic, the supply of gold could rise dramatically. Examples include seafloor or asteroid mining. Finally, fiat currencies, while only a relatively recent invention of history, have proven to be prone to consistent increases in supply. Nation-states have shown a persistent proclivity to inflate their money supply to solve short-term political problems. We have seen that dramatically during the 2020 corona crisis, where United States have been printing in one month more dollars than in the first two centuries of their existence. The inflationary tendencies of governments across the world leave the owner of feared currencies with the likelihood that their savings will diminish in value over time. Established history. No monetary good has a history as long as gold, which has been valued for as long as human civilization has existed. Coins minted in the distant days of antiquity still maintain significant value today. The same cannot be said of fiat currencies, which are a relatively recent anomaly of history. From their inception, fiat currencies have had a near-universal tendency toward eventual worthlessness. The use of inflation as an insidious means of invisibly taxing citizenry has been a temptation that few states in history have been able to resist. If the 20th century, in which fiat monies came to dominate the global monetary order, established any economic truth, it is that fiat money cannot be trusted to maintain its value over long or even medium term. Bitcoin, despite its short existence, has weathered enough trials in the market that there is a high likelihood it will not vanish as a valued asset anytime soon. Furthermore, the Lindy effect suggests that the longer Bitcoin remains in existence, the greater society's confidence that it will continue to exist long into the future will be. In other words, the societal trust of a new monetary good is asymptotic in nature. If Bitcoin exists for 20 years, there will be near universal confidence that it will be available forever, much as people believe the internet is a permanent feature of the modern world. Censorship resistance one of the most significant sources of early demand for bitcoins was their use in the illicit, illicit drug trade. Many subsequently surmised mistakenly that the primary demand for bitcoins was due to their ostensible anonymity. Bitcoin, however, is far from an anonymous currency. Every transaction transmitted on the Bitcoin network is forever recorded on a public blockchain. The historical record of transactions allow for later forensic analysis to identify the source of a flow of funds. It was such an analysis that led to the apprehending 
of a perpetrator of the infamous Mount Gox haste. While it is true that a sufficiently careful and diligent person can conceal their identity when using Bitcoin, this is now when Bitcoin was so popular for trading drugs. The key attribute that makes Bitcoin valuable for proscribed activities is that it is permissionless at the network level. When Bitcoins are transmitted on the Bitcoin network, there is no human intervention deciding whether the transaction should be allowed. As a distributed peer-to-peer -peer network, Bitcoin is by its very nature designed to be censorship resistant. This is in stark contrast to the fiat banking system, where states regulate banks and the others gatekeepers of money transmission to report and prevent outlawed uses of monetary goods. A classic example of regulated monetary transmission is capital controls. A wealthy millionaire, for instance, may find it very hard to transfer their wealth to a new domicile if they wish to flee an oppressive regime. Although gold is not issued by states, its physical nature makes it difficult to transmit at a distance, making it far more susceptible to state regulations than Bitcoin. India's Gold Control Act is an example of such regulation. Bitcoin excels across the majority of attributes listed above, allowing it to outcompete modern and ancient monetary goods at the margin, providing a strong incentive for its increased adoption. In particular, the potent combination of censorship resistance and the absolute scarcity has been a powerful motivator for wealthy investors to allocate a portion of their wealth to the nascent asset class. There is an obsession in modern monetary economics with the medium of exchange role of money. In the 20th century, states have monopolized the issuance of money and continually undermined its use as a store of value, creating a false belief that money is primarily defined as a medium of exchange. Many have criticized Bitcoin as being an unsuitable money because of its price, that has been too volatile to be suitable as a medium of exchange. This puts the cart before the horse, however. Money has always involved in stages, with the store of value role preceding the medium of exchange role. One of the fathers of marginalist economics, William Stanley Jevons, explained that, historically speaking, gold seems to have served firstly as a commodity value for an ornamental purposes, secondly as a stored, we a stored wealth, thirdly as a medium of exchange, and lastly as a measure of value. Using modern terminology, modern money always evolves in the following four stages. Collectible. In the first stage of its evolution, money will be demanded solely based on its peculiar properties, usually becoming a whimsy of its possessor. Shells, bets and gold were all collectibles before later transitioning to the more familiar roles of money. Second, store of value. Once it is demanded by enough people for its peculiarities, money will be recognized as means of keeping and storing value over time. As goods become more widely recognized as a suitable store of value, its purchasing power will rise as more people demand it for this purpose. The purchasing power of a store of value will eventually plateau when it is widely held and the influx of the new people desiring it as a store of value dwindles. Third, medium of exchange. When money is fully established as a store of value, its purchasing power will stabilize. Having stabilized in purchasing power, the opportunity cost of using money to complete rates will diminish to a level where it is suitable for use as a medium of exchange. In the earliest days of Bitcoin, many people did not appreciate the huge opportunity cost of using Bitcoin as a medium of exchange. The famous story of a man trading 10,000 Bitcoins, worth approximately 94 million at the time of this article's writing, for two pizzas illustrates this confusion.
Fourth, unit of account. When money is widely used as a medium of exchange, goods will be priced in terms of it. For instance, the exchange ratio against money will be available for most goods. It is a common misconception that Bitcoin prices are available for many goods today. For example, while a cup of coffee might be available for purchase using Bitcoins, the price listed is not the true Bitcoin price, rather it is the dollar price desired by a merchant translated into Bitcoin terms at the current USDPTC market exchange rate. If the price of Bitcoin were to drop in dollar terms, the number of Bitcoins requested by the merchant would increase commensurately. Only when the merchants are willing to accept Bitcoins for payment without regard to the Bitcoin exchange rate against fiat currencies can we truly think of Bitcoin as having become a unit of account. Monetary goods Monetary goods that are not yet a unit of account might be thought of as being partly monetized. Today gold fills such a role, being a store of value but having been stripped of its medium of exchange and unit of account roles by government intervention. It is also possible that one good fills the medium of exchange role of money while another good fills the other roles. This is typically true in countries with dysfunctional states such as Argentine or Zimbabwe or an even larger growing list of states like Venezuela and many more. In his book Digital Gold, Nathaniel Popper writes, In America the dollar seamlessly serves three functions of money. Providing a medium of exchange, a unit for measuring the cost of goods and an asset where value can be stored. In Argentina, on the other hand, while the peso was used as a medium of exchange for daily purchases, no one used it as a store of value. Keeping savings in a peso was equivalent to throwing away money. So people exchanged any peso they wanted to save for dollars, which kept their value better than the peso. Because the peso was so volatile, people usually remembered prices in dollars, which provided a more reliable unit of measure over time. Bitcoin is currently transitioning from the first stage of monetization to the second stage. It is striking to note that some of the transitions took many centuries for gold. No one alive has seen real-time monetization of a good as taking place with Bitcoin at the moment, so there is precious little experience regarding the path this monetization will take. Path Dependence In the process of being monetized, a monetary good will soar in purchasing power. Many have commented that the increase in purchasing power of Bitcoin creates the appearance of a bubble, which suggests that Bitcoin is grossly overvalued and it is intentionally apt. A characteristic that is common to all monetary goods is that their purchasing power is higher than can be justified by their use value alone. Indeed, many historical monies had no use value at all. The difference between the purchasing power of a monetary good and the exchange value it could command for its inherent usefulness can be thought of as monetary premium. As a monetary good transitions through the stages of monetization listed in the section above, the monetary premium will increase. The premium does not, however, move in a straight predictable line. A good X that was in the process of being monetized may be outcompeted by another good Y that is more suitable as money and the monetary premium of X might drop and vanish over time entirely. The monetary premium of silver disappeared almost entirely in the late 19th century when the governments across the world largely abandoned it as a money in favor of gold. Even in the absence of extraneous factors such as government intervention or competition from other monetary goods, the monetary premium for a new money will not follow a predictable path. Economist Larry White observed that. 
The trouble is with the bubble story, of course, that it is consistent with any price path and thus gives no explanation for a particular price path. The process of monetization is game theoretic. Every market participant attempts to anticipate the aggregate demand of other participants and thereby the future of monetary premium. Because the monetary premium is unanchored to any inherent usefulness, market participants tend to default to past prices when determining whether a monetary good is cheap or expensive and whether to buy it or sell it. The connection of current demand to past prices is known as path dependence and it is perhaps the greatest source of confusion in understanding the price movements of monetary goods. When the purchasing power of a monetary good increases with increasing adoption, market expectation of what constitutes cheap and expensive shift accordingly. Similarly, when the price of a monetary good crashes, expectations can switch to general belief that prior prices were irrational or overly inflated. The path dependence of money is illustrated by the words of well-known Wall Street fund manager Josh Brown. I bought bitcoins at like $2,300 and had an immediate double on my hands. Then I started saying, I can't buy more of it, as it rose even though that's an anchored opinion based on nothing other than the price where I originally got it. Then as I fell over the last three weeks because of a Chinese crackdown on the exchanges, I start saying to myself, oh god, I hope it gets killed so I can buy more. The truth is that the notions of cheap and expensive are essentially meaningless in reference to monetary goods. The price of a monetary good is not a reflection of its cash flow or how useful it is, but rather is a measure of how widely adopted it has become for their various roles of money. Further complicating the path-dependent nature of money is the fact that market participants do not merely act as dispassionate observers trying to buy or sell in anticipation of future movements of the monetary premium, but also act as active evangelizers. The religious fervor of participants in the Bitcoin market can be observed in various online forums where owners actively promote the benefits of Bitcoin and the wealth that can be made by investing in it. In observing the Bitcoin market, the least Drogon comments, you recognize this as a religion, a story we all tell each other and agree upon. Religion is the adoption curve we ought to be thinking about. It's almost perfect. As soon as someone gets it, gets in, they tell everyone and go out evangelizing. Then their friends get in and they start evangelizing. While the comparison to religion may give Bitcoin an aura of irrational faith, it is entirely irrational for the individual owner to evangelize for a superior monetary good and for society as a whole to standardize on. Money acts as the foundation for all trade and savings, so the adoption of a superior form of money has tremendous multiplicative benefits to wealth creation for all members of society. The shape of monetization. While there are no a priori rules about the path a, money will, a monetary good will take as it is monetized, a curious pattern has emerged during the relatively brief history of Bitcoin's monetization. Bitcoin's price appears to follow a fractal pattern of increasing magnitude where each iteration of the fractal matches the classic shape of a Gartner hype cycle. So in this article on the speculative Bitcoin adoption price theory by Michael Casey, posits that the expanding Gardner hype cycle represents phases of a standard S-curve of adoption that was followed by many transformative technologies as they become commonly used in society. Both technologies have been the telephone, the car, radio, electricity, the refrigerator, the stove, 
clothes washers, color TV, air conditioning, clothes dryer, dishwasher, microphone, cell phone, VCR, internet, and the computer. Each Gartner hype cycle begins with a burst of enthusiasm for the new technology and the price is bid up by the market participants who are reachable in that iteration. The earliest buyers in a Gartner hype cycle typically have a strong conviction about the transformative nature of the technology they are investing in. Eventually, the market reaches a crescendo of enthusiasm as the supply of new participants who can be reached in the cycle is exhausted and the buying becomes dominated by speculators more interested in quick profits than in the underlying technology. Following the peak of the hype cycle, prices rapidly drop and the speculative fervor is replaced by despair, public derision and a sense that the technology was not transformative at all. Eventually, the price bottoms and forms a plateau where the original investors who had strong conviction are joined by a new cohort who were able to withstand the pain and of the crash and who appreciate the importance of the technology. The plateau persists for a prolonged period of time and forms, as Cassie calls it, a stable, boring low. During the plateau, the public interest in the technology will dwindle, but it will continue to be developed and the collection of strong believers will slowly grow. A new base is then set for the next iteration of the hype cycle as external observers recognize the technology is not going away and that investing in it may not be as risky as it seems during the crash phase of the cycle. The next iteration of the hype cycle will bring a much larger set of adopters and will be by far greater in magnitude. Very few people participating in an iteration of the Gartner hype cycle will correctly anticipate how high prices will go in that cycle. Prices usually reach levels that will seem absurd to most investors at the earliest stages of the cycle. When the cycle ends, a popular cause is typically attributed to the crash by the media. While a stated cause, such as an exchange failure, might be a precipitating event, it is not the fundamental reason for the cycle to end. Gartner hype cycles end because an exhaustion of market participants reachable in the cycle. It is telling that gold followed the classic pattern of a Gartner hype cycle from the late 1970s to the early 2000s. One might speculate that the hype cycle is an inherent social dynamic of the process of monetization. Gartner Cohorts Since the inception of the first exchange-traded price in 2010, the Bitcoin market has witnessed four major Gartner hype cycles. With hindsight, we can precisely identify the price ranges of previous hype cycles in Bitcoin in the Bitcoin market. We can also qualitatively identify the cohort of investors that were associated with each iteration of the prior cycles, from zero to one dollar, 2009 March till 2011. The first hype cycle in the Bitcoin market was dominated by cryptographers, computer scientists, and cypherpunks who were already primed to understand the importance of Satoshi Nakamoto's groundbreaking invention and were pioneers in establishing that the Bitcoin protocol was free of technical flaws. One dollar to thirty dollars, March 2011 until July 2011. The second cycle attracted both early adopters of new technology and a steady stream of ideologically motivated investors who were dazzled by the potential of a stateless money. Libertarians such as, oh my god, Roger Ware is actually written there in this article, I can't believe it. <laughs> Libertarians such as Roger Ware were attracted to Bitcoin for the anti-establishment activities that would become possible if the nascent technology became widely adopted. Ventures Caceres, a brilliant and well-connected serial entrepreneur, was also part of the second Bitcoin hype cycle and is known to have evangelized Bitcoin to some of the most prominent technologists and investors in the Silicon Valley. 3. $250 to $1100 
April 2013 to December 2013. The third hype cycle saw the entrance of early retail and in institutional investors who were willing to brave the horrendously complicated and risky liquidity channels from which bitcoins could be bought. The primary source of liquidity in the market during this period was the Japan-based Mt. Gox exchange, Mt. Dox exchange <laughs> that was run by the notoriously incompetent and maleficent Mark Karpeles, who later saw prison time for his role in the collapse of the exchange. It is worth observing that the rise in Bitcoin's price during the aforementioned hype cycles was largely correlated with an increase in liquidity and the ease with which investors could purchase bitcoins. In the first hype cycle, there were no exchanges available and acquisitions of bitcoins was primarily through mining or by direct exchange with someone who had already mined bitcoins. In the second hype cycle, rudimentary exchanges became available, but obtaining and securing bitcoins from these exchanges remained too complex for all but the most technologically savvy investors. Even in the third hype cycle, significant hurdles remained for investors transferring money to Mt. Gox to acquire bitcoins. Banks were reluctant to deal with the exchange and third-party vendors who facilitated transfers were often incompetent, criminal or both. Further, many who did manage to transfer money to Mt. Gox ultimately faced losses of funds when the exchange was hacked and later closed. Hence, not your keys, not your coins. It was only after the collapse of the Mt. Gox exchange and a two-year lull in the market price of Bitcoin that major and deep sources of liquidity were developed. Examples include regulated exchanges such as GDAX and OTC brokers such as Cumberland Mining. By the time the fourth hype cycle began in 2016, it was relatively easy for retail investors to buy Bitcoins and secure them. Remember. Those hardware wallets and everything that um, we are talking every day about in Bitcoin Twitter, those things didn't exist back then. So people had significant risks in securing their Bitcoin and the use experience was quite horrible. Next hype cycle, 1100 to $19,600. 2014 until? Question tag. Yeah, let me tell you, we can write. <laughs> we can, <laughs> we can uh, rewrite the history now. I think this uh, article was written. Uh, let me let me scroll around a little bit. The article was written in or last updated in March 2018. So, at the time of writing, the Bitcoin market is undergoing its fourth ma major hype cycle. Participation in the current hype cycle has been dominated by what Michael Casey described as an early majority of retail and institutional investors. So you have the early adopters, the early majority, the late majority and the laggards. And I guess, honestly, we are still in a 10% penetration of target market, maximum 10%, where we st still are talking about early adopters. Everybody else is like, no, we are really, really, really just seeing the tip of the iceberg. Today is the 30th of August 2020 and we are still incredibly early. I will uh, go more into detail later, but now I'm going to continue reading this article for you. As sources of liquidity have, been, have deepened and matured, major institutional investors now have the opportunity to participate through a regulated futures market. The availability of a regulated futures market paves the way for the creation of a Bitcoin ETF, which will then usher in the late majority and laggards in the subsequent hype cycles. It is important to note that we are going through many, many different um, hype cycles and every hype cycle will have its, early, its own early adopters, early majority, uh, late majority and laggards. 
So be aware when we are talking about early majority, we're talking always about the current hype cycle. And at the moment, um, yeah, we are still incredibly early. Although it is impossible to predict the exact magnitude of the current hype cycle, it would be reasonable to conjecture that the cycle reaches its zenith in the range of 20 to 50,000 US dollars. We all know that this didn't happen. We are currently, I think, at like 12,000 US dollars uh, in August 2020. But we will, we will go higher and we will see what is going to happen. Much higher than this range and Bitcoin would command a significant fraction of gold's entire market capitalization. Gold in Bitcoin would have an equivalent market capitalization at a Bitcoin price of approximately 380,000 US dollars at the time of writing. I have to calculate these numbers again because I think 380,000 US dollars is way too low since the Federal Reserve has been printing money relentlessly in the last month because of the Corona crisis. So I guess those numbers will be much, much higher nowadays. Plus gold price went up like crazy recently. This article has been written before the Corona crisis. So obviously it will not reflect the current situation so well. This article is like two years old. A significant fraction of gold's market cap capitalization comes from central bank demand and it's unlikely that central banks or nation states will participate in this particular hype cycle. Obviously, central banks will be very cautious about buying bitcoins and if they do buy bitcoins, they will for sure not communicate that. So yeah, that's an interesting thing that I wonder which, which central bank will be the first to like, yeah... Um, I really wonder which central bank will be the first one to admit that they actually bought Bitcoin to back their currencies. Um, one also has to remember one thing. If you are a central bank, um, you want your money to depreciate against other countries' currencies. Obviously, for obvious reason, because that gives you an advantage when you want to export. So if you have uh, an exporting industry that is reliant on a cheap euro or a cheap dollar or whatnot, you don't want your currency to appreciate. And if you are admitting that you purchase Bitcoin and that you are planning to back your currency with Bitcoin, it will result in your currency to appreciate over other currencies. And by that, you would actually damage your exporting industries. So this is something to keep in mind. But we, I assume we are by far not there where we would see an accumulation of Bitcoin by central banks. So that's also written in the article, the entrance of nation states. So Bitcoin's final Gartner hype cycle will begin when nation states start accumulating it as a part of their foreign currency reserves. The market capitalization of Bitcoin is currently too small for it to be considered a viable addition to reserves for most countries. However, as private sector interest increases and the capitalization of Bitcoin approaches $1 trillion, it will become liquid enough for most states to enter the market. Let me have a look quickly at the current Bitcoin. Brief update. Um, the current market capitalization of Bitcoin of today, August 30th, 2020, is um, $213 billion US dollars. So we are really far from the $1 trillion that is... Um, expected to be the entry point or the point where central banks would enter the market. Uh, the one Bitcoin price in gold would be 5.9 ounces and Bitcoin has only 1.69% of the market um, cap of gold at the moment. So this is really, really early. 
Bitcoin price dropped. However, it is remarkable how good Bitcoin performed in the um, course of the Corona crisis in the early 2020s. So it is slowly becoming a store of value. And yeah, to be honest, I'm, I'm quite impressed by, by Bitcoin's performance during this whole Corona crisis so far. So Bitcoin's final garden hype cycle will begin when nation states start accumulating it as a part of their foreign currency reserves. The market capitalization of Bitcoin is currently too small for it to be considered a viable addition to reserves for most countries. However, as private sector interest increases and the capitalization of Bitcoin approaches $1 trillion, it will become liquid enough for most states to enter the market. The entrance of the first state to officially add Bitcoin to their, reserve, to their reserves will likely trigger a stampede for others to do so. The states that are the earliest in adopting Bitcoin would see the largest benefit to their balance sheets if Bitcoin ultimately becomes a global reserve currency. Unfortunately, it will probably be the states with the strongest executive powers, dictatorships such as North Korea, that will move fastest in accumulating Bitcoin. I think we already saw that happening. I think the North Korean were already accumulating Bitcoins by some exchange hacks and other sinister moves. But yeah, North Korea has to somehow get their hands on hard currencies. And for obvious reasons, it's like difficult to get their hands on dollars. So Bitcoin is a very um, worthy asset for them to try to acquire. Unfortunately, it will probably be the states with the strongest executive powers, dictatorships such as North Korea, that will move the fastest in accumulating Bitcoins. The unwillingness to see such states improve their financial position and the inherent weak executive branches of Western democracies will cause them to dither and be laggard in accumulating Bitcoin for their reserves. That's also something that I already mentioned. The ones that are getting in will their value, the value of their currency will appreciate and therefore we will have troubles or those countries will have troubles in or in the exporting industries because their products will be more expensive in relation to other in comparison to other countries that do not appreciate the currency by not backing that currency with Bitcoin. But they will basically face what is called the prisoner's dilemma. That means you can ignore Bitcoin only as a government when all the other governments also ignore Bitcoin. As soon as one starts accumulating, the others will be forced to react. And that's something that was uh, also a topic of a book that I quite liked a lot, Currency Wars uh, by James Rickards, which was exploring the those kind of intricacies of backing your country's um, money with gold in that respect. But I guess it would also be very interesting to see a currency war playing out with Bitcoin. That is something that I'm really like scared of. There is a great irony that the US is currently one of the nations most open in its regulatory position toward Bitcoin, while China and Russia are the most hostile. The US risks the greatest downside to its geopolitical position if Bitcoin were to supplant the dollar as the world's reserve currency. In the 1960s, Charles de Gaulle criticized the exorbitant privilege the US enjoyed from the international monetary order it crafted at the Bretton Woods Agreement of 1944. The Russian and Chinese governments have not yet awoken to the geostrategic benefits of Bitcoin as a reserve currency and are currently preoccupied with the effects it may have on their internal internal markets. 
like the Gaul in the 1960s, who threatened to establish the classical gold standard in response to US orbitant privilege, the Chinese and Russians will in time come to see the benefits of a large reserve position in a non-sovereign store of value. While the largest concentration of Bitcoin mining power residing in China, the Chinese state already has a distinct advantage in its potential to add Bitcoins to its reserves. However, again, I'm telling you, adding Bitcoin to your currency's reserve must be carried out in silence because otherwise you wake up the other players on the market and your currency will appreciate. So I don't see any central bank communicating a purchasing program for Bitcoins anytime soon. That is like years ahead of now. The US prides itself as a nation of innovators with Silicon Valley being a crown jewel of the US economy. Thus far, Silicon Valley has largely dominated the conversation toward regulators on the position they should take a VRV Bitcoin. However, the banking industry and the US Federal Reserve are finally having the f their first inkling of the existential threat Bitcoin poses to the US monetary policy if it were to become a global reserve currency. The Wall Street Journal, known to be the mouthpiece for the Federal Reserve, published a commentary on the threat Bitcoin poses to the US monetary, monetary policy. There is another danger, perhaps even more serious from the point of view of the central banks and regulators. Bitcoin might not crash. If the speculative fervor in the cryptocurrency is merely the precursor to it being widely used as an alternative to the dollar, it will threaten the central bank's monopoly on money. And that is what um, uh, Wall Street Journal wrote, I would add, the central bank's global monopoly on money. So the Federal Reserve really has a decent advantage against other currencies or other nation states because they are issuing the world's global reserve money. And yeah, I think it's about time that many, many countries that are under threat by US sanctions and move towards another global reserve currency. In the coming years, there will be a great struggle between entrepreneurs and innovators in Silicon Valley who will attempt to keep Bitcoin free of state control and the banking industry and the central banks who will do everything in their power to regulate Bitcoin to prevent their industry and money issuing powers from being disrupted. But again, as Andreas Antonopoulos said once, you can get your country out of Bitcoin, but you can't get Bitcoin out of your country. The transition to a medium of exchange. A monetary good can cannot transition to being generally accepted medium of exchange, the standard econo economic definition of money, before it is widely valued, for a tautological reason that a good that is not valued will not be accepted in exchange. In the process of becoming widely valued and hence a store of value, a monetary good will soar in purchasing power, creating an opportunity cost to relinquish it for use in an exchange. Only when the opportunity cost of relinquishing a store of value drops to a suitably low level can it transition to become a generally accepted medium of exchange. More precisely, a monetary good will only be suitable as a medium of exchange when the sum of the opportunity cost and the transactional cost of using it in exchange drops below the cost of completing a trade without it. In a barter-based society, the transition of a store of value to a medium of exchange can occur even when the monetary good is increasing in purchasing power, because the transactional costs of barter trade are extremely high. In the developed economy, where transactional costs are low, it is possible for a nascent and rapidly appreciating store of value, such as Bitcoin, to be used as a medium of exchange, albeit in a very limited scope. 
An example is the illicit drug market, where buyers are willing to sacrifice the opportunity of holding bitcoins to minimize the substantial risk of purchasing the drugs using fiat currencies. Well, okay, this sentence is also a little bit difficult because obviously all the transactions that are happening on the Bitcoin network are recorded in the Bitcoin blockchain. So if you want to use it to purchase drugs, I assume paying cash would be much, much better option than to use something that is permanently recorded forever in the decentralized network. But then again, I'm not a professional. I have no idea um, about buying drugs. So, yeah. There are, however, major institutional barriers to a nascent store of value becoming a generally accepted medium of exchange in a developed society. States use taxation as a powerful means to protect their sovereign money from being displaced by competing monetary goods. Not only does the sovereign money enjoy the advantage of constant source of demand by way of taxes being remittable only in it, but competing monetary goods are taxed whenever they are exchanged at an appreciated value. This latter kind of taxation creates significant friction to using a store of value as a medium of exchange. The handicapping of market-based monetary goods is not an insurmountable barrier to their adoption as a generally accepted medium of exchange, however. The handicapping of market-based monetary goods is not an insurmountable barrier to their adoption as a generally accepted medium of exchange, however. If faith is lost in a sovereign money, its value can collapse in a process known as hyperinflation. When a sovereign money hyperinflates, its value first collapses against the most liquid goods in the society, such as gold or foreign money, like the US dollar, if they are available. When no liquid goods are available or their supply is limited, a hyperinflating money collapses against real goods, such as real estate and commodities. The archetypal image of a hyperinflation is a grocery store empty as consumers flee the rapidly diminishing value of their nation's money. It is important to note that we see a lot of inflated housing prices nowadays all over the world, particularly in the European Union, where we have a really low base interest rate. And this is a sign for inflation that is not reflected in the inflation values that are being calculated because housing costs are not taken into consideration when calculating the inflation. So... I guess we are already at a point where we see a certain amount of inflation, particularly in the European Union. However, this is, like I already said, not reflected by the numbers um, that are being published by the statistics governmental agencies. Eventually, when faith is completely lost during a hyperinflation, a sovereign money will no longer be accepted anymore, and the society will either uh, devolve to a barter or the monetary unit will be completely replaced as a medium of exchange. An example of this process was the replacement of the Zimbabwe dollar with the US dollar. The replacement of a sovereign money with a foreign one is made more difficult by scarcity of the foreign money and the absence of foreign banking institutions to provide liquidity. The ability to easily transmit bitcoins across borders and the absence of a need for a banking system make Bitcoin an ideal monetary good to acquire for those afflicted by hyperinflation. In the coming years, as fiat monies continue to follow their historical trend toward eventual worthlessness, Bitcoin will become an increasingly popular choice for global savings to flee to. When a nation's money is abandoned and replaced by Bitcoin, Bitcoin will have transitioned from being a store of value in that society to a generally accepted medium of exchange. Daniel Kravitz coined the term hyper-Bitcoinization to describe this process. Common misconceptions about Bitcoin Much of this article has focused on the monetary nature of Bitcoin. 
With this foundation, we can now address some of the most commonly held misconceptions about Bitcoin. Bitcoin is a bubble. Bitcoin, like all market-based monetary goods, displays a monetary premium. The monetary premium is what gives rise to the common criticism that Bitcoin is a bubble. However, all monetary goods display a monetary premium. Indeed, it is this premium, the excess over the used demand price, that is defining the characteristics of all monies. In other words, money is always and everywhere a bubble. Paradoxically, a monetary good is both a bubble and may be undervalued if it is in the early stages of its adoption for the user's money. Bitcoin is too volatile. Bitcoin's price volatility is a function of its nascency. In the first few years of its existence, Bitcoin behaved like a penny stock, and any large buyer, such as the Winklevoss twins, could cause a large spike in its price. As adoption and liquidity have increased over the years, Bitcoin's volatility has decreased commensurately. When Bitcoin achieves the market capitalization of gold, it will display a similar level of volatility. As Bitcoin surpasses the market capitalization of gold, its volatility will decrease to a level that will make it suitable as a widely used medium of exchange. As previously noted, the monetization of Bitcoin occurs in a series of garden hype cycles. Volatility is lowest during the plateau phase of the hype cycle, while it is highest during the peak and crash phase of the cycle. Each hype cycle has lower volatility than the previous ones because the liquidity of the market has increased. Transaction fees are too high. A recent criticism of the Bitcoin network is that the increase in its fees to transmit bitcoins makes it unsuitable as a payment system. However, the growth in fees is healthy and expected. Transaction fees are the costs required to pay bitcoin miners to secure the network by validating transactions. Miners can either be paid by transaction fees or by block rewards, which are an inflationary subsidy borne by current bitcoin owners. Given Bitcoin's fixed supply schedule, a monetary policy which makes it ideal, su ideally suited for as a store of value, block rewards will eventually decline to zero and the network must ultimately be secured within transaction fees. Given Bitcoin's fixed supply schedule, a monetary policy which makes it ideally suited as a store of value, block rewards will eventually decline to zero and the network must ultimately be secured with transaction fees only. A network with low fees is a network with little security and prone to external censorship. Those touting the low fees of Bitcoin alternatives are unknowingly describing the weakness of these so-called altcoins. The specious root of the criticism of Bitcoin's high transaction fees is the belief that Bitcoin should be payment system first and store of value later. As we have seen with the origins of money, this belief puts the cart before the horse. Only when Bitcoin has become deeply established store of value, it will become suitable as a medium of exchange. Further. Once the opportunity cost of trading bitcoins is at a level at which it is suitable as a medium of exchange, most trades will not occur on the bitcoin network itself, but on second layer networks with much lower fees. Second layer networks, such as the Lightning Network, provide the modern equivalent of the promissory notes that were used to transfer tiles of gold in the 19th century. Promissionary notes were used by banks because transferring the underlying bullion was far more costly than transferring the note that represented the title to the gold. 
Unlike promissory notes, however, the Lightning Network will allow the transfer of Bitcoins at low cost while requiring little to no trust of third parties such as a bank. The development of the Lightning Network is a profoundly important technical innovation in Bitcoin's history and its value will become apparent as it is developed and adopted in the coming years. Competition as an open-source software protocol, it has always been possible to copy Bitcoin software and imitate its network. Over the years, many Im imitators have been created, such as Litecoin or even complex variants like Ethereum that promise to allow arbitrarily complex contractual arrangements using a distributed computational system. A common investment criticism of Bitcoin is that it cannot maintain its value when competitors can easily be created that are able to incorporate the latest innovations and software features. The fallacy in this argument is that the scores of Bitcoin competitors that have been created of the, over the last years lack the network effect of the first and dominant technology in the space. A network effect, the increased value of using Bitcoin simply because it is already the dominant network, is a feature in and of itself. For any technology that possesses a network effect, it is by far the most important feature. Remember platforms like Amazon, Facebook or Google that are by now the, the largest powers and have more or less reached the status of a monopoly. The network effect for Bitcoin encompasses the liquidity of its market, the number of people who own it and the community of developers maintaining and improving upon its software and its brand awareness. Large investors, including nation states, will seek the most liquid market so that they can enter and exit the market quickly without affecting its price. Developers will flock to the dominant development community which has the highest caliber talent, therefore reinforcing the strength of that community. And brand awareness is self-reinforcing, as would be competitors to Bitcoin are always mentioned in the context of Bitcoin itself. In the Bitcoin sphere, those alternative cryptocurrencies are called altcoins, or as I refer to them as shitcoins. A fork in the road. A trend that has become popular in 2017 was not only to imitate Bitcoin software, but to copy the entire history of its past transactions, known as the blockchain. By copying Bitcoin's blockchain up to a certain point and then splitting off into a new network, in a process known as forking, competitors to Bitcoin were able to solve the problem of distributing their token to a larger user base. The most significant fork of this kind occurred in August the 1st, 2017, when a new network known as Bitcoin Cash was created. An owner of N Bitcoins before August the 1st, 2017, would then own N Bitcoins and N Bcash tokens. The small but vocal community of Bcash proponents have tirelessly attempted to expropriate Bitcoin's brand recognition both through the naming of their new network and the campaign to conceive neophytes in the Bitcoin market that Bcash is the real Bitcoin. These attempts have largely failed and this failure is reflected in the market capitalizations of the two networks. Now, later there has been another fork of Bitcoin Cash itself and it forked into Bitcoin, Bitcoin Cash ABC and Bitcoin Satoshi's vision, I assume. So there is a lot of forking going on. Takeaway message is basically forget about all those Bitcoin forks and try to always get the real Bitcoin. Otherwise, you're, you're falling for some scam. 
An important rule can be learned from the major forks that have happened to both the Bitcoin and Ethereum networks. The majority of the market capitalization will settle on the network that retains the highest caliber and most active developer community. For although Bitcoin can be viewed as a nascent money, it is also a computer network built on software that needs to be maintained and improved upon. Buying tokens on a network which has little or inexperienced developer support would be akin to buying a clone of Microsoft Windows that was not supported by Microsoft's best developers. It is clear from the history of the forks that occurred in 2017 that the best and most experienced computer scientists and cryptographers are committed to developing for the original Bitcoin and not for any of the growing legions of imitators that have been cr created from it. Real risks. Although the common criticism of Bitcoin found in the media and economics profession are misplaced and based on flawed understanding of money, there are real and significant risks to investing in Bitcoin. It would be prudent for a prospective Bitcoin investor to understand and weigh these risks before considering an investment in Bitcoin. That's also the reason why I'm recording this, because I think this is a very important piece of information and advice for you to first try to understand why Bitcoin has some value and why it would be probably worth considering as an investment. Always do your own research, never trust anybody, not even me. I'm just merely reading out this brilliant article by Vijay Poyapati for you. But it is always, always, always important to do your own research, particularly when it comes down to hardware wallets or custodial solutions, where to store your Bitcoins, where to buy your Bitcoins, where to store your Bitcoins, everything. You need to have a proper understanding of what you're getting yourself into in order to be able to take educated decisions. And since we're talking about money and since you're working in a 9-to-5 job on a daily basis to obtain that money, it is very important that you understand where you're investing in. Protocol risks. The Bitcoin protocol and the cryptographic primitives that it is built upon could be found to have a design flaw or could be made insecure with the development of quantum computing. If a flaw is found in the protocol or some new means of computation makes possible the breaking the cryptography underpinning Bitcoin, the faith in Bitcoin may be severely compromised. The protocol risk was highest in the early years of Bitcoin's development when it was still unclear even to seasoned cryptographer that Satoshi Nakamoto had actually found a solution to the Byzantine generals problem. Concerns about serious flaws in the Bitcoin protocol have dissipated over the years, but given its technological nature, protocol risk will always remain for Bitcoin, if only as an outlier risk. Exchange shutdowns. By being de decentralized in design, Bitcoin has shown a remarkable degree of resilience in the face of numerous attempts by various governments to regulate it or shut it down. However, the exchanges where Bitcoins are traded for fiat currencies are highly centralized and susceptible to regulation and closure. Without these exchanges and the willingness of the banking system to do business with them, the process of monetization of Bitcoin would be severely stunted, if not halted completely. While there are alternative sources of liquidity for Bitcoin, such as the over-the-counter brokers and decentralized markets for buying and selling Bitcoins, like for instance localbitcoins.com or hodl-hodl or the BISC network, the critical process of price discovery happens on the most liquid exchanges, which are all centralized. Mitigating the risk of exchange shutdowns is a juristical arbitrage. Binance, a prominent exchange that started in China, moved to Japan after the Chinese government halted its operations in China. I guess right now 
they are even moving to Malta because this is even a more favorable jurisdiction for them. National governments are also wary of smothering a nascent industry that may prove as consequential as the internet, thereby ceding tremendous competitive advantages to other nations. Only with a coordinated global shutdown of Bitcoin exchanges would the process of monetization be halted completely. The race is on for Bitcoin to become so widely adopted that a complete shutdown becomes as politically infeasible as a complete shutdown of the internet. The possibility of such a shutdown is still real, however, and must be factored into the risk of investing into Bitcoin. My take of this paragraph is that there has never been any way to obtain a true global consensus except by using the Bitcoin protocol. So if you wanted to have to obtain a global consensus of any government on the planet to ban Bitcoin, this would be a threat to Bitcoin. But achieving global consensus, like I already said, has only been carried out once, and that is by using the Bitcoin protocol. This is a very interesting thing. If we would get to a point where all governments on the planet would achieve global consensus, they could actually attack Bitcoin. But this is absolutely unfathomable for me at the moment. And frankly, if we get to a point <laughs> where all politicians reach all countries on, on a global scale are able to create a consensus on any topic, then Bitcoin was already worth being developed because it provided a better future for us. Only with a coordinated global shutdown of Bitcoin exchanges would the process of monetization be halted completely. The race is on for Bitcoin to become so widely adopted that a complete shutdown becomes as politically infeasible as a complete shutdown of the internet. The possibility of such a shutdown is still real, however, and must be factored into the risks of investing in Bitcoin. As was discussed in the prior section of the entrance of nation-states, national governments are finally awakening to the threat that a non-sovereign, censorship-resistant digital currency poses to their monetary policies. It is an open question whether they will act on this threat before Bitcoin becomes so entrenched that political action against it proves ineffectual. Fungibility the open and transparent nature of the Bitcoin blockchain makes it possible for states to mark certain Bitcoins as being tainted by their use in prescribed activities. Although Bitcoin censorship resistance at the protocol level allows this Bitcoin to be transmitted, if regulations were to appear that ban the use of such tainted Bitcoins by exchanges or merchants, they would become largely worthless. Bitcoin would then lose one of the critical properties of a monetary good, fungibility. To ameliorate Bitcoin's fungibility, improvements will need to be made at the protocol level to improve the privacy of transactions. While there are new developments in this regard pioneered in digital currencies such as Monero and Zcash, there are major technological trade-offs to be made between the efficiency and complexity of Bitcoin and its privacy. I guess uh, with Taproot we are already on a very good way and sure signatures to improve the privacy of the Bitcoin protocol significantly but obviously there will always be something like an arms race. It remains an open question whether privacy enhancing features can be added to the Bitcoin in a way that it doesn't compromise its usefulness as money in other ways. A very simplified problem would be if you have a very private coin, then you will um, at a certain point run into the problem that you don't know how many coins are in circulation. And that would, of course, interfere with the goal of having a truly a hard limit of 21 million bitcoins. So there is always this trade-off. And this is something, a, a very complex issue that will, is at the moment being tackled by, by Bitcoin developers. Conclusion. Bitcoin is an incipient money 
that is transitioning from the collectible stage of monetization to becoming a store of value. As a non-sovereign monetary good, it is possible that at some stage in future Bitcoin will become a global money, much like gold during the classical gold standard of the 19th century. The adoption of Bitcoin as a global money is precisely the bullish case for Bitcoin and was articulated by Satoshi Nakamoto as early as 2010 in an email exchange with Mike Hearn. If you imagine it being used for some fraction of world commerce, then there's only going to be 21 million coins for the whole world, so it would be worth much more per unit. This case was made even more transiently by the brilliant cryptographer Hal Finney, the recipient of the first Bitcoin sent by Nakamoto shortly after the announcement of the first working Bitcoin software. I imagine that Bitcoin is successful and becomes the dominant payment system in you throughout the world. Then the total value of the currency should be equal to the total value of the wealth in the world. The current estimates of the total worldwide household wealth that are found range from 100 trillion to 300 trillion. With 20 million coins that gives each coin a value about of about 10 million US dollars. By the way, this was in 2010. <laughs> Since then the um, overall monetary base on this planet has increased a lot because of some severe money printing by central banks to cope with the corona crisis. So yeah, but anyways, I think the 10 million price tag for one Bitcoin is a very, very far-fetched and in, in a very distant future. But I think you also get the idea what Healthini was trying to say. Even if Bitcoin were not to become a fully-fledged global money and were simply to compete with gold as a non-sovereign store of value, it's currently massively undervalued. Mapping the market capitalization of the extent above ground gold supply of approximately $8 trillion to a maximum Bitcoin supply of 21 million coins gives a value of approximately $380,000 per Bitcoin. In other words, let Bitcoin's market capitalization equals 1.7% of gold's market capitalization. So there is still a lot of room to grow. As we have seen in the prior sections for the attributes that make a monetary good suitable as a store of value, Bitcoin is superior to gold along every axis except for established history. As time passes and the Lindy effect takes hold, established history will no longer be a competitive advantage for gold. Thus it is not unreasonable to expect that Bitcoin will approach and perhaps surpass gold's market capitalization in the next decade. A large fraction of gold's capitalization comes from central bank's holdings. For Bitcoin to achieve or surpass gold's capitalization, some participation by nation states will be necessary. Whether the Western democracies will participate in the ownership of Bitcoin is unclear. It is more likely and unfortunate that tin pot dictatorships and kleptocracies will be the first nation standard Bitcoin market. If no nation states participate in the Bitcoin market, there still remains a bullish case for Bitcoin. As a non-sovereign store of value used only by retail and institutional investors, Bitcoin is still early in its adoption curve. The so-called early majority are now entering the market, while the late majority and laggards are still years away from entering. This is a very optimistic way. I guess we are really still the early minority. With broader participation from retail and especially institutional investors, a price level between 100 and 200,000 US dollars is feasible. Owning Bitcoin is one of the few asymmetric bets that people across the entire world can participate in, much like 
a call option on an investor's downside, it is limited to 1x, while their potential upside is still 100x or more. Bitcoin is the first truly global bubble whose size and scope is limited only by the desire of the world's citizenry to protect their savings from the vagaries of government economic mismanagement. Indeed, Bitcoin rose like a phoenix from the ashes of the 2008-2009 global financial crisis. A catastrophe that was precipitated by the policies of central banks like the Federal Reserve. Beyond the financial case for Bitcoin, its rise as a non-sovereign store of value will have profound geopolitical consequences. A global non-inflationary reserve currency will force nation-states to alter their primary funding mechanism from inflation to their direct taxation, which is far less politically palatable. States will shrink in size commensurate to the political pain of transitioning to taxation as their exclusive means of funding. Furthermore, global trade will be settled in a manner that satisfies Charles de Gaulle's aspiration that no nation should have privilege over any other. We consider it necessary that an international trade be established as it was the case before the great misfortunes of the world on an indisputable monetary base and one that does not bear the market of any particular country. 50 years from now, that monetary base will be Bitcoin. So thank you for listening. This was a quite lengthy installment. I have, uh, I was recording, I think like almost one and a half hours. I hope you enjoyed it. I was um, reading out this article of Vijay Boyapati that you can find on Twitter. Um, his handle is at RealVijay. And I hope you found it interesting. I think he covered a lot of things. I also added some additional thoughts and sometimes contextualized a little bit. And I would be happy if you would also follow me and like this video or like this podcast. And I hope, yeah, I will be producing more of that content. Ring me, ping me, write me, um, comment. Um, my handle on Twitter is at btchap. And yeah, I hope you enjoyed listening to this podcast. <laughs>